Past into the first whitened streets and on into the swirling heart of horns and traffic. The movement of mechanical random things sickened her. The buildings upon buildings piled together shocked her eyes. The strange lack of plant growth confused her. The people stared through her as though she were invisible until she thought she was, and walked more easily then, just a cloud reflected in a stream. Below the heart of the city, where the stomach would be, strange meadows opened made of stuff clipped and green. For a long while she stood before a leafless box hedge, upset into a state of wonder at its square shape, amazed that it should grow in so unusual a fashion, its twigs gnarled in smooth plains. She looked up into the bank of stone walls, of brick houses and wooden curlicued porches that towered farther uphill. In the white distance one mansion shimmered, light glancing bold off its blank window panes and turrets and painted rails. Fleur blinked and passed her hand across her eyes, but then behind the warm shadow of her fingers she recovered her inner sight, and slowly across her face there passed a haunted white wolf grin. Sometimes an old man doesn't know how he knows things. He can't remember where knowledge came from. Sometimes it is clear. Fleur told me all about this part of her life some years after she lived it. For the rest, though, my long talks with Father Damien resulted in the history of the great house that Fleur grinned up at that day. I pieced together the story of how it was formed. The priest and I sat long on the benches set against my little house, or at a slow fire, or even inside at the table, carefully arranged on the linoleum floor over which Margaret got so particular. During those long conversations, Father Damien and I exchanged rumors, word, and speculation about Fleur's life and about the great house where she went. What else did we have to talk about? The snow fell deep. The same people lived in the same old shacks here. Over endless games of cards or chess, we amused ourselves by wondering about Fleur Pillager. For instance, we guessed that she followed her trees, and from that we grew convinced that she was determined to cut down the man who took them. She had lived among those oaken pine trees when their roots grew deep beneath her, and their leaves thick above. Now he lived among them, too. Only he lived among them cut and dead. Here is how all that I speak of came about. During a bright thaw in the moon of little spirit, an Ojibwe woman gave birth on the same ground where much later the house of John James Mauser was raised. The ridge of earth was massive, a fold of land jutting up over a brief network of lakes, flowing streams, rivers, and sloughs. That high ground was a favorite spot for making camp in those original years before settlement, because the water drew game, and from the lookout a person could see Wasa far off, spot weather coming or an enemy traveling below. The earth made choke cherries from the woman's blood spilled in the grass. The baby would be given the old name Wuju Mountain. After a short rest he was tied onto his mother's back, and the people moved on, moved on, pushed west. From that direction the place where the dead follow after their names came wheat in a grasshopper year, hauled out green and fermenting to feed the working crews. 
a city was raised, Gakabikang, place of the falls, wood framed, brick by brick. The best brownstone came from an island in the deep cold northern lake called Gichigami. The ground of the island had once been covered with mammoth basswood that scented the air over the lake for miles out, with a swimming fragrance of such supernal sweet innocence that those first priests who came to steal Ojibwe souls, penetrating deeper into the heart of the world, cried out, not knowing whether God or the devil tempted them. Now the island was stripped of trees. The dug quarry ran a quarter mile in length. From below the soil, six by eight blocks were drilled and hand-cut by homesick Italians who first hated the state of Michigan and next Wisconsin and felt more lost and alien the farther they worked themselves into this country. Every ten hours, night and day, the barge arrived for its load and the crane at the water's edge was set into operation. The Italians slept in shifts and were troubled in their dreams, so much so that one night they rose together in a storm of beautiful language and walked onto the barge to ride along with their own hewn rock toward the farthest shore, forfeiting wages. Still there was more than enough brownstone quarried, cut, and finished, shipped and hauled uphill for the construction of the house to continue. And to the north, near yet another lake, and to the edge of it grew oak trees. On the whole continent, and to each direction, these were judged the finest that could be obtained. In addition, it proved easy and profitable to deal with the Indian agent Tatro, who won a personal commission for discovering that due to a recent government decision, the land upon which those trees grew was tax forfeit from one Indian, just a woman. She could go elsewhere, and anyway she was a troublemaker. There was no problem about moving the lumber crews right in, and so the cut was accomplished speedily. Half was sold, the other and the soundest of the wood was processed right at the edge of the city to the specifications of the architect. Watching the oak grain emerge in warm swirls of umber, the architect thought of several gestures he could make. The sleek entrance, the complicated stairwell, the curves. He saw the wood accomplishing a series of glowing movements in grand proportions. He pointed out the height of imposing windows to Miss Polly Elizabeth, the sister-in-law of his client, and now his self-appointed decorating assistant. She took detailed notes and dispatched a servant to the Indian missions to procure fine lace produced by young women whose mothers had once worked the quills of porcupines and dyed hairs of moose together into intricate clawed flowers and strict emblems before they died of measles, cholera, smallpox, tuberculosis, and left their daughters dexterous and lonely to the talents of nuns. Copper, misquabic, soapstone, slate for the roof shingles, a strange tremendous crystal of pyrite traded from a destitute family in the autumn of no rice. The walls were raised, and fast against them a tawny insulation of woven lake reeds was pressed tight and thickened by three layers, and then four, so that no stray breeze could enter. The chimneys were constructed of a type of brick requiring the addition of blood, and so, baked in the vicinity of a slaughterhouse, they would exude, when there was fire lighted, a scorched physical odor. 
iron for the many skeleton keys the house would take, for the griddles, the handles of the mangle, for the locks themselves. The Moorish-inspired turned railings of the entrance and the staircase was mined on the Mesabi range by Norwegians and Sami so gut-shot with hunger they didn't care if they were trespassing on anybody's hunting ground or not, and just kept on digging deeper, deeper into the earth. Water from the generous river, fire trembling in beehive kilns, and sweat. Most of all, sweat. Sweat from the bodies of men and women made the house. Sweating men climbed the hill and set the blocks and beveled the glass and carved the details and set down floors of wood, parquet, concrete, and alabaster. Women coughed in the dim basements of a fabric warehouse, sewing grapes and dishcloths and hemming fine linen. One day overhead a flight of sandhill cranes passed low enough to shoot, and the men on the crew brought down nearly a hundred to pluck and roast, eat, digest and use up making more sweat laying bricks. A lynx was killed near the building site. One claw was set in gold and hung off the watch fob of John James Mauser, who presented his wife with a thick-spotted muff made to the mold of her tender hands. She referred to it ever after as our first house cat, and meowed at him a little when they were alone. But she was much too well brought up to do more than that, and stiffened harder than the iron banisters when she was touched. Trying to make love to her was for young Mr. Mauser like touching the frozen body of a window mannequin, whose temples only, whitened and throbbing, showed the strain. One night.